the third window from the right two flights up by the third window from the right Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Third Window Films podcast. My name is Ben and with me is... Adam. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you're, you're so checked out at this already, aren't you? Yes, Adam no, from Third Window Films. <laughs> yeah, and you know the score by now. Score, get it? Uh, this show is a celebration of all things Third Window Films from the perspective of the fan being me and the man himself being Adam Terrell. Shit. <laughs> okay, you're forgiven now. You brought your A game on that one. <laughs> yeah, that, I know. I know. Saika will be listening, so that was one for her. Saika is uh, obviously friends with all three of us, so she will yeah. be happy at that. Love that. Okay, well, as Adam just alluded to there, it's not just the two of us this month. We do have a special guest. And yeah, our, our guest today is probably best known as the keyboardist for the 80s dream pop and 90s shoegaze band Swim Deep. Um, but for our audience, he's one of the, uh, well, I'd say leading freelance journalists specializing in the coverage of East Asian cinema. So his work has been published in The Guardian, Dazed, BBC Culture, Sight and Sound, uh, along with many, many more. And yeah, he's been covering Third Window Films releases for a while now. Um, and yeah. Most importantly of all, these days, I'm very proud to actually call him a friend too. Uh, so without much further ado, uh, we welcome to the show, James Balmont. Hello. 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 Thank you very much for such a, a gushing introduction. Um, uh, it's very kind of you. Uh, great to be here. Obviously, I'm also a fan um, <laughs> as well as a uh, musician, writer, uh, so on and so forth. So yeah, it's great to be here today. Oh, you know me, James. Gushing is what I do best. <laughs> uh, yeah, so well, like I said, so we, we know each other through Adam, essentially, right? Um, I started doing the podcast with Adam, and you were doing a lot of the uh, journalism for, for his releases. So, Adam, I don't know if you want to start off by saying how you kind of connected with James and, and how it all came about from your end. Actually, I've never met either of you in person now, which is... <laughs> We've spoken so many times on this uh, online and uh, and James to all the interviews and such, but yeah, never actually met. Uh, but yes, that will change uh, in a couple of months, uh, and we can talk about that uh, towards the end of this podcast. But uh, to be honest, actually, I don't remember the first time that, that James uh, and I. <laughs> you yeah, have to rem- remember, remind me. I can remember. I think I think you told me off because I was talking about Shinya Sukamoto and the Arrow Films bo- box set. And you pointed out that actually the Shinya Sukamoto films were the one where you did them first, and then um, Arrow sort of pinched them for their box set, and uh, and <laughs> and yeah, so that was that was I think how we first interacted, and then we first uh, spoke face to face when you were in the hospital when your um, your son had just been born because you were <laughs> um, setting up. Uh, I interviewed Uchicha, who did the Gekimation films, Violence Voyager and Burning Buddha Man. I interviewed him for The Guardian a few years ago, and Adam was setting up the interview whilst sat by the hospital bed. Um, his son had just been born. So, yeah, workaholic. 
That is insane. That that sums Adam up perfectly, doesn't it? The the day his son, the hour his son is born, almost he's still on a video call for an interview. Yeah, I think <laughs> I got the most work I've done ever when I was uh, in hospital last year for about three weeks. So um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a very quiet place. Well, that time wasn't as quiet, but uh, you know, it's it's <laughs> I, I I never stopped working, unfortunately. <laughs> The, the birth of my daughter was like a 23-hour panic attack. I don't know how I would have got anything done. So kudos. That's Good cool, balance. though. I mean, um, yeah, James, so we met quite recently. We met a few times, obviously, like the London East Asian Film Festival and things like that. But most recently we met when we both uh, went to meet uh, IG Uchida in London. Yes. Which was absolutely awesome. Yeah, that was great fun. Yeah, man, for sure. But we were spoke about getting you on the show and, and what we could talk about, really. And obviously, like, your band, your band has been going now for, what, like, 20 years, right? More or less? No. Ten, ten, I've been in the band for 10 years. Um, in fact, we're, we're, we're touring the 10th ten, anniversary of our first record this summer. Um, that's the latest thing I'm doing in that side of my life. Um, but yeah, there's kind of like a nice uh, connection here because it's actually through my band Swim Deep. Was, um, that was the only time I've been to Japan has been uh, through uh, performing there with the band. And that was about, that was like eight, eight or nine years ago. And um, much more recently, I watched Fish Story, uh, one of the films that Adam's released. And one of the bonus features is there's a live performance um with key playing the drums uh <laughs> and the venue he's playing in is the venue that i played in with my band so i was very oh, excited wow. to uh to see that um because you know at the time that i was playing in japan i didn't have a clue what anything was or you know i just about worked out that shibuya was like the the hip um you know youth culture district in Tokyo um but yeah so that's just a nice little way that that ties in both these worlds together yeah nice is there any footage of you playing that venue do you know uh there's photos I don't think there's well what's what's really interesting actually about um performing in Japan is um obviously uh, I think bands and artists always want to to get out to Japan Japan's got the third biggest music industry in the world um, there was always that thing in the 90s when CDs were the chosen, uh, you know, method of listening to music where bands would always have to do bonus tracks in uh, for their Japanese albums because uh, unlike in the UK and the US, uh, Japan didn't have s CD singles in the same way. So when you mm. release a CD single, you would have the single and a B-side or two B-sides, whereas Japan didn't get that. So when bands made an album for Japan, you'd always have to give like a sweetener on the end of an album. <laughs> um, and, uh, but anyway, yeah, so Japan always has had this allure for bands, I think, but performing in Japan, the, the crowds are quite, um, quite different from the UK and the US. <laughs> and, and, and I think this is like, uh, this is something that's, been discussed before but the crowds are quite polite um which is quite strange because kind of in the uk we've got this culture of like moshing and losing your shit whenever you go and see a band you like whereas in japan people are very still and they clap politely 
And when we were performing out there, one of the promoters was telling us about there was this law called. Um, in fact, I mentioned <laughs> this. I mentioned this when we were having lunch um, the other day, Ben, um, mm. with um, the director. And um, yeah, that they had apparently there was this law called Fuejo. I don't know if you know anything about this, Adam. Where I do, I do. It's still sort of around. Uh, well, up until recently, the, the no dancing law, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And uh, and we were fascinated by this. We, essentially, you know, from my understanding, this law means that you can't dance too vigorously at clubs or at gigs in Japan because um, because it's disruptive and they might send the police in and you might get arrested. <laughs> so our main takeaway from our experience in Japan is we came home and on the following album, we wrote an eight-minute song with like a uh, acid house, like breakbeat ending. And we called it Fuejo Boogie um, <laughs> as kind of like a, you know, the no dancing dance song. Um, that was kind of, I don't think anybody's ever got it, what it actually means, but <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like a takeaway we had. But um, yeah, so that so that's still around, is it, Adam? Yeah, I mean, up until quite, I mean, obviously, since my kid was born, I've not gone anywhere near a club or, or a life house. But uh, when I when I used to go to a, 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 a deep funk place in, in Shibuya called The Room, which is a really cool uh, club. And and when I was always wondering like, no, why nobody would dance and I, and I would dance and people were like, no, no, you can't dance. Like, what are, you, what are you fucking talking about? It's a club. Like, why can't I dance? And they're like, no, 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 the, it's the no dancing law because the police will come, you know, uh, <laughs> and and I it always uh, quite surprised me because I thought as an English person like actually it's dancing is a way of like showing the DJ that that you're like enjoying the music and you're having a good time and yet I was the only one ever dancing in the clubs and especially as a DJ myself like I would when I DJ I would want people to dance and here in Tokyo or in Japan they just stand there and then when when you finish the song, they like clap, and it's like I didn't fucking sing the song. I'm just playing it on a record, you know. Uh, like, you know, and and I always wonder, like, like just just stop looking at me. Like, it's really like like you get a bit nervous, like if people just all looking at you, and yeah, you, because you expect that, like, if you play a good song, like you know, people would move. And that's what we found as well, because normally when you're playing a live show, you feed off the atmosphere that the audience is giving you. There's like an energy in the room, and people are dancing, and that kind of like gears you on and. In Japan, we were all quite nervous because there was that absence of that in the room and just this stillness. And then, you know, you kind of mimic that. You start to like freeze up. <laughs> like, what's going on? But um, we had um, we had the uh, sorry Cyborg Joe from the Lethal Weapons on um, a few months back, and he was saying how a lot a lot of their songs are based around how you stand still and kind of just fist pump the air, like Mel Gibson, <laughs> Mel Gibson, so everyone can enjoy it without moving too vigorously. It's crazy. <laughs> well, he's got the otaku crowd, and the otaku crowd actually do dance because they have like their certain otaku dance routine, uh, like like the idols as well. But um, I think it's a bit different when it comes to like like rock or something like that, or DJs in clubs. Like it's really hard, as as you're saying, James. Like to, to as a DJ as well. Like, do you like this song? What should I play? Like, should I continue with this vibe or switch it up a little? And half the time, like when I was first DJing, how my sets would be all over the place because I'd be like, I play some like sweet soul, and then I'm like. Oh, maybe they don't like it, okay, because they're not moving. So we play some disco, and they're like, "Oh, but they're not moving this." So I just we just got fucking all over the place with like themes, like trying to figure out what. The, and then I realized after a while, like um, uh, you know, especially hearing the stuff about the no dancing, that um, yeah, you uh, they they just that's just how Japanese are. It's really interesting if you see it, Ben, when you get when you get out there. <laughs> like it's just a 
different vibe but in, in its own way it's kind of cool but um yeah but yeah sadly we never played these big festivals like fuji rocks or summer sonic i was just speaking to a friend of mine the other day who was um used to be part of charlie xcx's band who was just talking about summer sonic um but yeah i mean i'm hoping that we might be able to get out there again uh sometime in the next couple of years but uh but you know who knows but anyway so i thought kind of like yeah, as you said, Ben, like I, I'm a writer and I write about a lot of the films that Adam releases and other East Asian films. Um, but I'm also really passionate about uh, Japanese music, not necessarily that yeah. I'm an expert, but what's interesting at the moment in the UK and in the West in general is there's been quite an influx of Japanese music um into our record stores, which is interesting in itself, because as you've talked about before, Adam, um, there's always this thing about Japan being this island nation that hasn't always been interested in forging those relationships and exporting music or films, even though, like I said, Japan is the third biggest record industry in the world. But um, more and more, if you go in like your local record store in the UK or in America, there's um, there's records, all these city pop records, all the 80s pop music and boogie and funk music is getting reprinted by these specialist labels and distributed in places like everywhere from HMV to Rough Trade and hmm. um, Yellow Magic Orchestra, of whom uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto was a founding member, sometimes, you know, sometimes called like the Japanese craftwork, who were incredibly influential in the 70s and 80s on everything from techno and electronic music to hip hop. There's been like a huge reappreciation of them in the past uh, 10 years, I would say. There's been this huge boom in interest in Japanese ambient music and this whole Kankyo Ongaku um, environmental music, which is stuff that I really love, but it's basically comes from Japan's kind of like the economic boom in the eighties where they had loads of money to commission uh, composers to make music for things like adverts, uh, shopping centers. Um, there's a really great record I've got by someone called Hiroshi Yoshimura, which is this kind of like mix of field recordings and synthesizers. And it comes in a green bag and it was, the music was composed to, for the launch of a Shiseido perfume. And the record came with a spray of perfume in the bag. So I've got this 80s vinyl record uh, of this like beautiful ambient music and the, you smell the bag and it's got the smell of perfume to it. Because the whole concept was like making this, it's the same thing now where if you go to a museum, it's always about experiential stuff. Mm. You go to an exhibition or something and there's going to be like the smell of this and the sound of this and the visuals and you know, you feel this and that. Um, but they were doing this thing in the 80s where they want you to associate products and experiences with a certain sound and feeling. So a lot of that music is being distributed in the UK and the West now. And then there's everything from, uh, you know, Flower Traveling Band, who are like the Japanese Black Sabbath. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really into a band called Fishmans, who were in the 90s part of this Shibuya K, uh, kind of indie infused with dub music. Um, 
Uh, Aiko Ishibashi, who did the Drive My Car score, recently performed in the UK, and I went to that. That was amazing. Uh, and then there are labels like We Want Sounds and um, a label called We Release Whatever the Fuck We Want, who <laughs> distribute loads of stuff by jazz musicians like Ryo Fukui and Hiroshi Suzuki. And they're also now um, doing lots of the Shinya Sukamoto films, uh, soundtracks by Chuishikawa. Um, I've got Tokyo Fist, and they did they did the Evil Dead Trap um, oh. score. Um, they did um, some of the, I think, Belladonna of Sadness. Hmm. Um, but anyway, just to kind of bring it back together. So I'm in London, <laughs> and um, and there's there's even like a store that's opened in. Um, columbia road where the flower market is that's a record store exclusively for japanese imported <laughs> music so yeah so i thought with all of this and with you know my background is in music as well i thought it'd be an interesting way to navigate some third window films by looking at the music and the director composer collaborations because in a lot of these films that's a really big part of the appeal i think well, yeah, as, you can yeah, all hear, as you can all hear, James <laughs> is very knowledgeable on this subject. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, no, no, very passionate. I mean, I mean, myself as well. One of the big things that I got into Japanese culture for was records. And when I first started mm. coming over to Japan, it was to buy records and bring them back to. Uh, I was living in America at the time. When I was eighteen, I flew to Japan for the first time with and just filled my whole entire luggage up with records and um, <laughs> just brought them all by hand. I brought like three hundred records. Uh, Obviously, seven inches. I couldn't bring twelve inches. I think I brought some twelve inches, um, and then just brought them back to America. You know, that's uh, places like um, you know Disc Union and and all these other amazing vinyl record shops were just doing it way before. I mean, now in England, you, it's it's very cool to have records, I guess, or it's quite like uh, hip again. But um, you know, Japan has been hardcore into the records uh, more than most any other countries, uh, and really. Like I mean, Disc Union in 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 Shinjuku is actually splits up. It's every single music genre into its own store so you have like one they have like eight or nine stores in like across a few buildings and like one store is like like 70s rock and one store is like hip-hop and one store is like you know a punk or something like that so it's it's the japanese are, are proper into their music they're just like as you were saying they're really bad about getting it out there and um you know mm. what you were also saying james is you know a lot of these things that you're finding in england now are actually set up by distributors over here mm -hmm. you know or, or in america and um a friend of mine as well, he runs a company called JPU Records, um, a guy called Tom Smith. He's a really cool guy. And he was, he's been doing that, obviously, with different bands, bands like Gazette and all like Visual K and all this sort of stuff that is a bit uh, different. But he's he was telling me always how hard it was to work with Japanese companies. Mm. But over years, he's managed to, to get them over and um, get them into stores in the UK. But it, yeah, like, like film distribution and music distribution, like uh, they have so much great stuff in Japan, but it's really hard. To, to license it and get it over but it, it over time you know we can do it i guess as james just said there you know we, we had this plan to talk about you know composer and director collaborations um and we've been planning this for about a month i guess when i say planning we had it in our heads um and then yeah a couple of weeks ago out of nowhere you know ryuchi sakamoto passed away um i, th I believe it, it was it was cancer wasn't it um i think that's yes. what i've read so he beat cancer once a few years ago and then he disclosed maybe it was 
a year or two ago that he was battling it again. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Sakamoto Ben, but um, I mean, I know uh, yeah. the like obviously like Merry Christmas, Mister Lawrence. Mm. I know like not only he wrote the soundtrack, but he starred in it. Um, yeah, and he was in a few, he was in quite a few films, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he he's he's also um, he's also cameoed in uh, The Last Emperor by uh, Bertolucci, and also did the score for that. Won an Oscar for that. Became the first Asian person to win Best Original Music at the Oscars for his score <laughs> for um, The Last Emperor, which was also with David Byrne from Talking Heads and uh, uh, Kong Su, who I think is a Chinese percussionist. Um, <laughs> But before that, he was in Yellow Magic Orchestra and um, had like a so amazing solo career as well. It's kind of gone from experimental electronic pop music to more recently uh, much more avant-garde and um, ambient and experimental sound arts. I saw him performing in the UK. I think guess it must have been his last concert was in 2018. And... Um, but he's also done some really interesting stuff. Like, so he composed the startup sound for the Sega Dreamcast. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, yeah. And he did all the, I found this out the other day, he did all the ringtones for the Nokia 8800 phone. <laughs> no so it's, his career has kind of encompassed everything from pop music to sound art to like micro um, compositions for technology. But I think um, maybe in the West, we know him best for his film scores and he's collaborated. I mean, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, starring David Bowie and Sakamoto by Nagisa Oshima. is probably his most famous work and rightly so because it's such an amazing score. Um, but he also, after that, he collaborated with everyone from Brian De Palma um, to Pedro Almodovar, um, Alejandro Inarutu, um, he did, you know, the Revenant and that yeah, so, as well, right? Yes, that's right. And then, in fact, um, the new Hirokazu Koreeda film Monster um, will oh, yeah, yeah. will feature his kind of last score. Um, that's that's the film that Koreeda is releasing this year. Um, that's going to be so, extra powerful then. Yeah, and I think it, I think you know we were driving in the car at the weekend. It was Easter weekend, and they were playing like Sakamoto's music on BBC Radio. So I think his passing has impacted quite a lot of people, and I think that's because the music itself is so often so moving and melodic and powerful. But um, I was quite interested, Adam. You know how how was the news of his passing um, received in Japan? Was it quite a big deal? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, all, all Instagram and Twitter and those sort of things were just uh, for a few days nonstop with every single famous person in Japan who might have had a photo with him at some point is putting putting mm. that up, uh, you know, so it's, it's it's a big deal. And I think Japanese, um, despite the fact that, uh, you know, Japan is the third biggest uh, economy uh, along with everything else, are very have a lot of pride when any of them, if any Japanese person makes it big overseas. You know, um, if a Japanese film were to get an Oscar, for example, or uh, somebody for who's Japanese makes a hit over, overseas, you know, it's a huge thing in Japan. Like Otani, the baseball player, is like a, a god over here, you know, because not many Japanese do make it uh, internationally. So I think because Sakamoto was one of the few people that, uh, especially in his field, 
that um made a big name overseas uh he's really really considered uh, somebody like a, like a god i guess i was quite surprised with the reaction here not that you know i was surprised that there was so much outrage but there was just like walls and walls and walls of people just mourning his death um which just surprised me because again he didn't seem like a household name to me i think cuz because we work in this industry and we we're fans of it um I don't know. Maybe I've just got a micro, micro bubble of uh, film Twitter that just was obsessed. But yeah, all I could see, like you said, was just floods of people just reacting to it. It was quite moving. And and I also think that is part of this whole kind of in the last ten years or so. I I do think some of these Japanese names are becoming more well known in the West. Um, part of what I was speaking about earlier, and I think. Um, I think when it comes to Japanese music and Japanese film scores, um, the entry points really are Sakamoto and probably Joe Hisaishi, um, who I think we're going to talk about a bit because Adam's released some films that have Joe Hisaishi's scores on them. Yeah, he's, he's, he's big. You are the Segway king at the moment. <laughs> Driving this <through. laughs> But yeah, no, when you talk about Japanese composers, uh, Hisaishi is the one for me, 100%. I don't, if, if, he, if he's in charge of this score, um, it's one of the biggest selling points for me seeing a film. And even if it's a director I've never heard of before or um, you know, I don't know anyone who's in it, I'll still go see it because his score is going to be, be a part of it. And I think, I mean, I don't know how many he did of the Kitano films, but it was a hell of a lot, wasn't it? Mostly all of them, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think it started with... Well, the interesting one is Violent Cop. He didn't do, which if you watch it after watching all of Katana's other films, the music's quite weird in that film. It's kind mm. of... Uh, it's almost comedic, um, especially the opening. Although my favourite scene in that film is the kind of the foot chase after, mm. um, uh, which is... I can't remember who the composer was, but it is like a musical section of the film. But I think... Um, I don't think there was any original score in Boiling Point, but I think it was a scene at the sea, which was their first collaboration. And then Kitano and his Aishi worked together until I think it was Dolls. And mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm remembering this right, but I think they had a falling out, which is why they haven't worked together since then. But um, the interesting thing, I think, is because at the same time, Joe Hisaishi also had this collaboration with another big filmmaker in Japan who was Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli fame. So what happens is when you watch films like Spirited Away that has this like huge, lush, orchestrated, whimsical score, um, it very much feeds into that kind of fantasy, um, that escapist, like beautiful atmosphere and then you go and watch sonatine or hanabi or kids return and as much as the the scores are different they're still kind of similar for sure so you kind of have this subversion of the joe hisaishi um that's kind of sweeping almost cloud debussy um like orchestral music but applied to these kind of like brutal uh, crime films and uh, I think that's kind of what makes those Kitano films so special to me because yeah it kind of transcends the the whole viewing experience when you have that music there I completely agree like so he did 
probably my favourite Miyazaki film, which was Princess Mononoke. And in the same year, he did Hanabi for mm. Kitano. And the juxtaposition of those two, um, I mean, they're both violent and beautiful, but yeah, you're, you're spot on. And you can you can definitely recognise a Hisaishi score when you hear it. He also, he also did the, uh, one of my fav- favourite pieces of music that Joe Hisaishi did was he actually did the startups, the... Um, the Office Kitano theme, that kind of six-second sec- six sting that happens at the beginning of all Kitano's films, um, which for me is like a really nostalgic... It's like when you hear the 20th Century Fox like fanfare. <laughs> like, you know you're in for a good time when you hear the Office Kitano uh, music. But, um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Joe Hisaishi also came from... Um, this kind of ex, uh, experimental minimalist um, percussive background. He did loads of albums with a with a group called Imquadru Ensemble, whose albums are all you know repressed and available in the West now. He made a lot of pop music, I think, before he did all his scores, and then he later won. I think he's won something like seven Japanese Academy Prizes for best score, mostly from the. Um, Studio Ghibli films and the Kitano films, um, but yeah, I've got I've I've got Kids Return on vinyl. It's one of my favourites that he's done. Um, but yeah, he's just one of the one of the best, in my opinion, um, when it comes <laughs> to Japanese film composers. I like what you're saying about they all do these micro compositions because. Mm. I know from, you know, the few sort of friends I know in the music industry that if you can get a song, say, on a a national advert, that's how you make your money. And it's almost (laughs) you get more than that in record sales these days. And I wonder what, you know, doing an intro to the Dreamcast or doing Mm. the intro to Office Kitano would pay. I was thinking we should get someone, Adam, I don't know, one of your composer friends to do a a little intro for the third window window Blu-rays. Well, you might be onto something there. Like, um, I mean, the famous example is that Brian Eno... Um, who kind of, you know, um, created the concept of ambient music. He was paid something like a million pounds to compose the Windows 95 startup theme. <laughs> um, and if you listen to that, it's like three seconds long because that's all they could fit on the music file in the 90s. So I think his brief was, can you make the like nicest sound that people are going to feel like, ah, oh, this is going to be fine, this is... I've got a quality piece of equipment here that they will hear every time they start up their Windows computer. And yeah, in the 90s, the um, the fee for doing something like that was something like a million pounds. Blimey. I can't even <laughs> hear it in my head now. What is that sound? Bibing, is it? Yeah, it's like bum, bring, bum, bum, bum. Ah. It has like a piano chime at the end and it's all dreamy and nice. I'm sure they must have um, got Sakamoto to do the Dreamcast thing after, you know, they saw that Brian Eno did this thing for Windows and they thought, yes, we want a piece of that. Um, but um, but Joe Hisaishi, yeah, um, back back to him, like he was he was actually doing some shows in the UK last year or the year before, but weirdly they kind of like weren't promoted it was like Joe, Joe Hisaishi does Studio Ghibli and it was something like at Wembley Arena. Sold out instantly. I think it was delayed a couple of years because of the pandemic, but 
yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of an example of how big some of these figures are getting or can get in the UK. There was also, they had the My Neighbor Totoro, uh, I think it was a musical that was, mm. I think it was at the Barbican with the Royal Shakespeare Company for something like six months, um, which Joe Hisaishi uh, was a part of. I think he sort of... Uh, you know, worked closely with the Royal Shakespeare Company to do this musical version of the film. Um, so, yeah, but those are both in the past now, sadly. So, <laughs> That's another thing, I think, is there's very much a kind of you have to be there um, kind of mentality when they do come over. You don't know when Hisaishi will come back, you know. So, But you're right, I didn't even know that he played Wembley. So mm. if, if it's well, not promoted, how... Huh? Yeah, if it's sold out so quickly, then, then, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. But but you're right. I mean, it is so it is it's so expensive. I mean, I'm mm. talking from the perspective of like an indie band, but traveling to the opposite side of the world to play a couple of shows is tremendously expensive. And then there's visas and cost of tr- transporting equipment. So when someone like Aiko Ishibashi, who did the Drive My Car score played in the UK a few months ago, you've kind of got to jump on that opportunity because, yeah, you don't know when there's going to be another opportunity like that. Um, I'm trying to think if there are some other examples, but I can't think of any right now. But, yeah, so you've got to keep your eyes out for for these opportunities. For sure. One of the things that... Um, one of the things... One of the films that Adam released recently um, was Electric Dragon, 80,000 Volts, the Sogorishi classic. Um, I think it'd be good to move on to the composer there next because the films we're talking about are narrative features that have beautiful music in the background, whereas that film is almost like a a 60-minute music video, like cyberpunk, um, just masterpiece. Um, And so that that was uh, Hiroyuki Onagawa, right? Yeah, yeah. And and Onagawa himself, because of the success of that film, has always been thought of as this like rock a guy who loves rock music and, and makes rock music, but actually he's not like that at all. He would, that was the only film that he was asked to make and made <laughs> rock music for, but he's really into ambient sound. And, uh, you know, mm. August in the water is, is his sort of the film that I think encapsulates, uh, his style the most. Um, but because mm. electric dragon is, is, is the most well-known film, everybody thinks of him. Yeah. Like as this rock guy, but he's, yeah, he's not. And, and August in the Water, I think, is actually what I was mentioning earlier, the Kankyo Angaku uh, ambient and shopping centre music and stuff. Um, Onagawa's score for August in the Water, it's, that's the same kind of music, I would say, as this this whole genre that's got really popular in the last few years uh, in the West. So that kind of really appeals to me. I find it really interesting. And like you said, that he made the complete opposite kind of music, probably at Ishii's request, I imagine. Ishii, yes. having interviewed Sogo Ishii twice and, uh, you know, read lots about him, knowing how much of a fan he is and was of the Sex Pistols and the whole punk scene. Um, I can only imagine that, you know, he went to Onagawa and was like, can you make some of my music this time? Mm. Um yeah, and he made he made a very very good one for for Electric mm. Dragon. I mean, that's a really really fantastic score. I mean, uh, actually going back to August in the Water, Onagawa has been trying to put that out on vinyl, and mm. apparently a, an English company um, asked him to do it, and 
the thing is, is that the rights to that film are up in limbo. We've been, I've been asked about it a million times and I've said the same thing every time is that uh, the rights are a mess. <laughs> but because the rights are a mess, and actually he was never paid um, to make the music for that film, uh, apparently. So he, he's just trying to get it out on vinyl anyway and, and just say, and if it uh, if a, a lawsuit comes up saying, well, well, I wasn't paid initially, then, you know, what can I do? So um, there might be a vinyl of it coming out before the film does uh, in England at some point, uh, hopefully. Yeah, that that would be amazing. I would love to to find out who's who's releasing it. You just kind of reminded me of one of the one of the strangest records I I bought recently as part of this whole influx of Japanese music. Is I kind of blind bought this N sixty four Japan only game soundtrack that kind of just came up on one of the record stores websites that I was browsing. It's called Doshin the Giant. And uh, it's just the most bizarre, exotica-like type music. But uh, the reason why I mention it is because August in the Water has still not been released in the West. So it would be interesting mm. if the soundtrack was released over here before the film itself. But uh, like I said, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happened. This record store in Columbia Road that does all the Japanese music just has shelves and shelves of anime soundtracks for example anime that you know you've never heard of it's never been released over here but the music itself and video game music as well um it all has like a, an audience or a, at least a cult audience i mean in in i have a friend here that um a westerner friend who who just collects um video game soundtracks in different formats mm. like uh on single cd on uh on on uh yeah on vinyl on on regular cd and cassette tape and all that and actually in nakano which is uh uh in, in tokyo there's a place called nakano broadway which is all just some otaku shops uh floor to ceiling and uh they have loads of shops they're just selling uh video game soundtracks uh, so yes if anybody after if you make it to japan uh, anybody and uh want to save a lot of money instead of buying it for, imported from the uk uh, nakano broadway is, is the place to go for sure yeah, I feel like the next time I make it over there, I mean, I do this anyway. I, I bring an empty suitcase and bring back as much stuff as I can, but it's it's a dangerous game once you start collecting vinyl, a dangerous and expensive game. I feel like we should have had a caveat at the beginning of this of this episode, a disclaimer, um, <laughs> you know, keep your, keep your wallets uh, in the other room. Um, it should but, be like a casino, right? Be like, I'm only <laughs> spending what I can afford to lose. <laughs> Exactly. But yeah, Sogo Ishii, I think, is Adam's released a few of his films now. And I think from a from a music perspective, all of his films have this really strong musical element to them, um, which I think is part of what makes them so great, especially if you think back to Crazy Thunder Road and Burst City. I know Arrow released that, but um, uh, both both star Shigeru Izumiya, I think. Um, and I think he also did that great sort of title track in Crazy Thunder Road with the kind of those, just the guitars. And because he was a punk musician, I believe, or some kind of punk poet. Mm. Um, he, also, he also directed Death Powder, the uh, yeah. sort of proto cyberpunk film. And I was also just flicking through this morning. I didn't realize he's also kind of cameos in his motorbike, Her Island. And um, the island closest to heaven, both by um, uh, what's his name? I've completely. Obayashi. Mm. Obayashi. Obayashi. 
actually, in, in the island closer to heaven, one of the members from YMO is in there as well, if I remember correctly, in the yeah, opening that's right. scene. Yeah, yeah he, play, he plays the dad in like the flashback. That's Yukihiro Takahashi, who, another member of Yellow Magic Orchestra, along with Ryuchi Sakamoto, who also died just a couple of months ago, um, who's made some amazing music as well. Um, but yes, yeah, so yeah, here, here you go. So if you start watching some of Adam's films, there's loads of musician cameos as well. <laughs> and um, But with, with Sogo Ishii, I think he also went through this phase where he was just doing lots of work with, well, he's also worked, he's always worked really closely with musicians. Mm. Uh, hasn't he, Adam? He's always cast punk, punk musicians in his films. And he did, um, one of my favorite films of his is Harbour Mensch, which is his film he did with, go on, Adam, you, you have something to say. No, I was just going to say, actually, I watched it just the other, the other day on the big screen because they had a retrospective of, of um, Sogwishi's films. And the, just coincidentally, um, at the same time, there's, there was a company in, in the 80s called the Director's Company, which was um, mm. from 1982 to 1992. And it was like, uh, so it was Sogo was a part of it, along with Kurosawa Kiyoshi and Takashi Bamme. It was nine directors that, that formed this company of directors making films by directors. And Half, Half a Man, or Halber Meinsch, was one of the films from that Director's Company. But bringing it back, recently, um, a friend of mine found negatives of all of many of the director's company films, like they were lost for years, mm-hmm. including like Typhoon Club and all that. So this, within all this whole stack of negatives he found, he found the negative of Half a Man, Harbour Mind. And, but Ishisogo was planning this retrospective of all his films and never, never knew where the negative was. So when he had the retrospective of Half a Man, I, we had to watch it, it was on VHS. <laughs> but and when I told and just uh, and I think a few days before that I, I, I had met the guy who found the original negative and I went to Sogwishi and I said like what are you screening of it off and he goes like oh I could not I couldn't find it so I'm screening off VHS and I said you know this guy this friend of mine has got the negative and he's like what you know I've been searching for the negative print of that for like 10-15 years so but it was too late to, to um obviously uh, put in the retrospective so we had to watch this terrible terrible copy of half a man on the big screen, but in in the near future there will be a new version because the negative has been found. But but yeah, that's a a totally crazy uh, fifty minutes sort of music video that about uh, this German band, which I'm sure you know more about the band than, than I. Uh, a little bit. I mean, it's it's kind of industrial German band called Einsturzender Neubauten. Who um, I can't remember the guy's name, but the the main guy in it was in Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds for quite a while and. Uh, I think he's also done some acting or something like that. But yeah, they were quite influential in, in their own way in uh, Germany and and elsewhere. But Harbour Mensch, the film, I almost feel like it would add to the experience watching it on VHS because it's <laughs> it's kind of like, from what I remember, it's like the band's performance, this very kind of like primitive sounding industrial music in a warehouse with um, piles of bricks everywhere and... I think it's intercut with um, just some weird footage of like, you know, industrial wastelands and, you know, degrading, um, deteriorating buildings and stuff. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's fun to watch, even if you don't know any of the music, which I, which I didn't when I watched it. Um, it's just good, good, like filmmaking. Um, and I really like Sogo Ishii. He's one of my favorite 
filmmakers who, uh, I mean, Adam hasn't quite introduced me to him because I knew Electric Dragon 80,000 volts um, since, you know, the early 2000s, I guess. But uh, he's certainly one of my favorite filmmakers, I think. Sure. Oh, he's got a, a I mean, really varied catalogue, you know, I mean, of more than more than any other filmmaker out there, I think. So and I was just going to say, and he's so much fun to interview as well, which is why Adams helped me set up interviews with him twice. And he's a really interesting, funny guy who doesn't mind like speaking his mind and whatever. He's got lots of stories. So, um, yeah, I mean... I very much hope, Adam, that you can continue to release um, some of his films, new or old, because, um, yeah, every time you do, I feel like I can get a really good story out of him for for my work. (laughs) Um, But also because his films are so great, of course. Who else have you interviewed uh, for Adam over the years? Because the list is pretty long, right? Yeah, so, I mean, and the great thing about working with Adam is that he kind of breaks down that barrier between Japan and the UK, which is such a big barrier. There's, you know, not only the language barrier, but even finding out who to contact. So that's why I've, I've, I've worked with so many of Adam's films over the years, because um, it's just, yeah, it just breaks down that barrier. But I think so from Adam's releases, I've interviewed... Um, Shinya Sukamoto. Um, I've interviewed Sogoishi twice. I've interviewed Toshiaki Toyoda for a big feature for Sight and Sound. That was a really good one. Um, uh, there was, I did a big feature for BBC Culture on Onoda 10,000 Nights in the Jungle. Oh, yeah. Which was, that was a really good one. And then <laughs> we interviewed him too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh... It was one of our biggest technical snafus on the podcast. It was hilarious, but yeah, oh, lovely true. guy. <laughs> um, but I mean, outside of Third Window Films, I've I've done work recently with people like Park Chan Wook, uh, Kim Ji Woon. I did Shion Sono a couple of years ago before all the controversy, and then just very recently, I've spoken to Hirokazu Koreeda, Junkhead director Takahide Hori. Um, that's for Empire this month. And I'm so excited for that junkhead. That's screening at one of our art house cinemas around here. I can't wait. Yeah, it's a great film. Um, and again, I feel like, you know, I want to say Adam's films, Violence Voyager and Burning Buddha Man, those are some of my favorite releases that you've done. And that kind yeah. of feeds into the junkheads and uh, that kind of world. So I feel like people are sleeping on that then um, then they should no longer sleep on it because those films are wicked. <laughs> and there, there's a sale on Arrow right now until May the 1st uh, with Uchida for like, uh, I think, £12 or £15. And it's got five films on the disc and uh, the 2000 or whatever limited edition is still there like uh, years <laughs> after. Uh, it takes. I'm surprised how long it takes to sell such a limited mm-hmm. number. But um, yeah, Uchida is really... Uh, I don't think there's many people in the world who spend so much time working on just one thing. You know, it's Mm. years and years and years of working at a tiny little desk. Uh, We're not talking about some big Ghibli studios here. We're talking about like a desk in your mom's house for like (laughs) years and years making one, one film. It's uh, and Junkhead is the same. And I mean, and Mad God was another one, uh, you know, that sort of level of, of uh, passion and uh, time put towards it. I love that sort of stuff. 
as everyone mm. should. It's a great story as well. When you've got all these kind of crazy filmmakers spending years and working on their own as well. Most of the time, it sounds like, um, so they are real passion projects. And I think that makes films like that so much more interesting. Um, yeah, Tsukamoto's the same as well, doing everything everything with his own money and his own time and taking years to do it. And that's why, uh, you know, I think when you have, when it's all your own, you can take as much time as you want and you don't have anybody saying, we need this out next month, you know, and you can spend like three years editing it or whatever, you know, it's a, that's how you can make something really, really good. But um, yeah, it's obviously very tiring uh, for, for a lot of them. Let's let's talk about Sukamoto then, right? Because you've interviewed him, um, and he's another director that has a very close relationship with his composer, Chu uh, Ishikawa. Um, one of the things I found out today in my very limited research doing this <laughs> as a fish out of water with this sort of scene was he actually did a couple of uh, Takashi Miike films as well. So he did the soundtrack to Fudo, The New Generation, mm-hmm which is like, I, I only saw that last year and it blew my fucking mind at how good it was. Um, and he also did Dead or Alive 2, Birds, which is, you know, one of the strongest films Mika ever did. Um, mm. Both with really, really bold scores, yeah. His score for Fudo, The New Generation, is actually my favourite score, I think, he of Chu Ishikawa. Alongside Tetsuo Iron Man, I think those two are his... His uh, his best works, the the, right. Fudo, the new generation score is just crazy industrial guitar music, and it kind of fits the mood of the film so much. That kind of comic book over the top violence, and you just have yeah. this big dumb rock like score, head banging. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, Chuishikawa, I think he died four or five years ago. He was only fifty one years old. Um, I don't know. He, I think he had an illness because he's, he's, he, he's quite a gaunt looking person. But um, throughout his career, yeah, he had the long running partnership with Tsukamoto from Tetsuo up to, I think, up to Fires on the Plane. I think um, the kill- oh, Killing was stuff that he was it previously mm-hmm. recorded, I think. Uh, maybe. Yeah, he's not credited as that, that being one of his soundtracks on Killing. Oh, I think I think it was too. It, it was it was stuff that he recorded before he died, and then uh, it was just used for killing. Um, so it's not probably wasn't original for the film, but uh, I believe. But yeah, I may be wrong. he did like he did Kotoko as well, right? Which is, I mean, that film is harrowing in itself, but the score really adds to it so much. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to watch. Amazing. But it, it, it's another example of like a great director composer uh, partnership. Um, because, you know, we're just speaking about how Tsukamoto is such a distinctive filmmaker and you really get his personality in all his films because it is his own money. And from what I've heard, he's quite uh, not not controlling, but he he's, he works in all aspects of the film. And Chuishikawa being present in all of those films, you get his personality in all the films, which adds to the whole Tsukamoto cinema flavour. Um, and I think Chuishikawa was another one who's come from this kind of industrial music background yep. i saw some vid- i saw some videos on youtube of only a few years ago he was playing shows and just you know like how slipknot used to have like the oil barrels on stage and people would just hit the oil barrels <laughs> and that was like just part of the the chaos well that's the kind of music that chuishikawa was still playing on stage a few years ago um it's- 
it says on um, online as well, he founded a couple of industrial music groups in Germany as well, mm. which again seems to be quite a common thread with a lot of these composers. <laughs> That's re- really interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, it's again, lots of interesting, indu- lots of industrial music has come out of Germany. Like you think about people like Rammstein, mm. um, example of like an industrial rock band. So, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. For sure. I think um, just looking through this list, though, it, it's it's wild when you go from Tokyo Fist to Bullet Ballet to Gemini to Snake of June to Vital to Haze to the two Nightmare Detective films to Kotoko, then Fires on the Plane. That is such a huge body of work. Um, I'll have to go back and listen to them all because I don't know how you know recognisable his imprint is on them all. I think because in my mind, those films are all very varied. Um, so I don't know if the score, you know, represents but I mean, that. that's, what's interesting because as, as much as Sukamoto has, he's not just the cyberpunk director, he's, you know, you think of something like a snake of June is quite different. And so too has the composer developed and adapted throughout that, that career. And you get different sides of his personality as well in the music, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was just gonna say I'm, I'm really interested to to wonder what the, the the his next film will be like because after being with the same composer for so many years, and then being doing something different. I mean, if you look at Kitano as well, you know, after he's actually left, like his movies went down, and <laughs> uh, I, I still hope that um Tsukamoto is not like that. I mean, we'll see. It'll probably be this year or next year. Yeah, do we know too much about what Tsukamoto is doing next? I don't exactly know. I know that he's uh, got one in production or in prose production, uh, and either this year or the or next year. I mean, I was speaking to the product, the people who financed it. It wasn't financed completely by him at this time, so um, he does have a company involved, and they're just telling me that he's taking a long time to do it. And I said, "Well, what do you expect?" I think I don't know if I've just read this as a rumor somewhere or if it was. Um... Uh, confirmed, but I, I thought it was another period war piece along the lines of fires on the plane. I'm not sure if there's any validity. I've heard there. that, but 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 that might have been the same uh, whispers that, that have gone around in circles. So who knows? Mm. But uh, I, maybe I heard that because I said it, or, or and I might have. Been <laughs> 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 maybe uh, James, we'll you mentioned as well. You you mentioned as well that you interviewed Toyota. Um, and yes. obviously he is one of the cornerstones of the kind of third window films legacy. Um, mm-hmm. Adam's released nearly all of his films and got a close relationship. Um, when I think of Toyota's films, I, I always think of the music, but mostly I think of the kind of bands that he puts in, like mm-hmm. the, the punk and the garage and the grunge and stuff like that. Um, in terms of actually composers or score, um, I find it a little less connected like that in my mind. I don't know. Is that the case with you too? Or do you know quite a lot about that? Uh, So I don't know a whole lot about um, Toyota's musical collaborators other than, well, let's just start at the beginning with Porno Star, which I think has Mm. one of the most amazing introductions of uh, anything Adam's released. That amazing slow motion shot of... um, uh, sorry, I've forgotten the actor's name. Um, w- walking towards the camera across Shibuya Crossing with um, the that kind of like grungy stoner rock 
riff from the band called Dip uh, playing over it. And it's so menacing and heavy and just really cool. Um, He's just shoulder barging into people pretty much, isn't he? That's right. He's, He's got his Parker coat and he's just like the quintessential like stranger comes to town with a bad attitude um mm. and that 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 track that plays i think is such a good piece of um you know musical synchronization and so from what i know i don't know a whole lot about katsuhide yamaji who was in the band dip but i do know it's interesting cuz you look this stuff online and it's not really online but i remember studying the credits quite closely when I did that feature for Toyota for uh, with Toyota for Sight and Sound. And I think Katsuhide Yamaji did score or soundtrack work on Nine Souls, Hanging Garden. And I just saw this morning that he's he stars, he's one of the people in The Planetist, which I haven't seen, but mm. um, so he's obviously had this very long running relationship with Toshiaki Toyoda. And um, and I think, yeah, again, it's like you say, Ben, all of his films do have this strong musical element, whether it's, I mean, score can be original music of any kind, of course, added mm. to a film. Um, or it might just be that some of Katsuhide Yamaji or Dip's uh, music was licensed to be in those films. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say of any depth other than that he's just a, an artist that I've discovered through Adam's films that I just think's like wicked. Um, <laughs> For sure. This kind of, I've looked I've looked at trying to buy the the mini album 13 Towers by Dip which the song in Porno Star is from but I think you can like only get it on tape or something like there was never a vinyl <laughs> release. It's never released outside of Japan. Um you know, there's that, and then there's Blue Spring has a really great soundtrack with loads of stuff by a band called The Michelle Gun Elephant. Interesting name. <laughs> they're quite um, major. I mean, uh, I think they're quite well known overseas, so more than any other band. I think that he's worked with. Yeah. So. I remember yeah, just I, telling Adam that I love that soundtrack so much. It's like exactly my music style, and he was like, "Yeah, it's not mine." <laughs> it's yeah. Not really your Adam. Blue Spring, I lo- I really liked uh, Blue Spring, but but I think especially some of the stuff he's done recently, Toda has been a little too much for me, uh, personally. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit too. I always like short songs. I'm into like you know Northern Soul and punk, so I like short songs. But Toda's always into that really really long uh, and drawn out uh, guitar based stuff, which uh, especially more nowadays than before, it's a bit too much for me to be honest. But uh, Blue Spring will had that punk element because the Michelle but Elephant Elephant were a punk band. So you know it, I know that, with um yeah. the Day of Destruction in particular, where is it um is it Mahi to the People was the the star? <laughs> and he's just got this guttural scream. And I think he's in a I don't think they're industrial, but they're a very heavy, like screamo metal deathcore band, aren't they? <laughs> Um, and he directed a film it. recently, actually, Maho, Maho to the People, that was in Tokyo Film Festival in competition last year. I haven't seen it, but apparently it's quite good. Uh, I think oh, he got cool. a lot of it. Yeah, uh, I, that's just a side, a side to that. But uh, is it, yeah, it avant garde um, like Toyota, or is it narrative? I think it's pretty avant garde, um, mm-hmm. from what I heard. But um, I, it got quite good reviews. I haven't it hasn't really played anywhere since the Tokyo Film Festival, so 
I guess maybe more, maybe people didn't see it or, uh, but uh, I remember Toyota actually he used a VDJ a lot, and uh, it was fantastic. Like he would just project loads of loads of images on on a screen in a big club and DJ along with it, and uh, it was really amazing events. I mean, uh, and his work with with Goma as well. He worked a lot with with Goma, the digital do, and I was never really into that sort of music. And I went to one of his his shows live, and it was really fantastic. Uh, like uh, I, it was fantastic um, experience. Just uh, whether you're into that music or not, I think you it's just so so fantastically moving. Uh, but but yeah, Toyota's films, he's always got that fantastic element to them. And uh, him himself is really into music. And now he's in the band the Sepulchre Pistols, who um, <laughs> appear in. Uh, in his latest films a lot and he joined their 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 band well i don't know if you could call it a band but they're, but they're a troop <laughs> uh, yeah there's like they, 20 of them or something isn't there yeah and they all work uh, for free and they all have day jobs <laughs> and, and do that on the weekend apparently and they, but apparently it's really hard they, they're very hardcore in into like proper practice and proper you know doing their shows despite the fact that they're it's all basically for for a hobby uh it's not not, not, a, not a day job but um yeah, he, like I think a few months ago, they just walked down this river for like six hours in Sumida in, in, in Tokyo, just walked just this whole entire river, just walked down it, just playing, drumming along and, and doing their, their songs, I guess. Uh, yeah, quite hardcore stuff. <laughs> I, um, I read this interview with you, Adam. I forget who it was with now. Sorry, I apologise to whoever this was. But you, you put this quote in that said, as a record collector and a DJ, I'd rather play rare and unknown tracks nonstop at a club, but that would be aimed at myself and basically killing the dance floor dead. In order to get people to dance to an unknown record, you first need to get them on the dance floor and in the mood. Then you can drop in some tracks they've not heard before. Um, and that's the same with film distribution, I guess. I'd love to release just unknown and minor titles nonstop, but then they would become harder and harder to sell. So a balance of major and, you know, obvious titles mixed with the unknown ones is necessary. Um, I really like that quote, and it's very much, you know, obviously clearly what you do. But I was looking into some of the films you've released that are based around music as well, and, and there's some really interesting ones. Like, obviously, you've done ones where you've released the soundtracks with them, um, like The Legend of the Stardust Brothers um, or uh, Ruined Heart that we talked about the other day. Um, Low Life Love too. I've still got loads of those records in, my, in a box somewhere. <laughs> but you've also released films that are very focused around music and, and, and punk especially. So you've got a Yoshihiro Nakamura's Fish Story, right? Mm. Which is literally like the tagline for that film is Can Punk Save the World? Um, I don't know, would you consider that a, uh, a small film that you had to push to get out there? Or was that one of the big hitters that you think was drawing a crowd? No, I mean, that... That was quite a big film in Japan as well. And when I first released it in England, it actually went into cinemas and, and it did decent decently and um, also sold to television. So it was quite a... Uh, I mean, maybe it wasn't like one of these... Yeah, it wasn't a super well-known, obvious title. I mean, I still think I was one of the only people in the world to distribute it. But um, at the same time, it's it was it's not like a suffering of Ninko or something like that. Uh, like... The, <laughs> like you know, it's somewhere in between, but it it, it did quite well. Um, unfortunately, the Blu-ray hasn't done as well as I expected. But um, after years of everybody saying I want you, I want to upgrade on that, and I finally put it out and, and uh, hasn't sold at all. But um, you know, I, I really love that film. I think I it was one of those films that I used to always, whenever I was doing like shows, 
selling DVDs to people in, in a room, I would always recommend that blind buy if you weren't interested in into Japanese cinema, like that and Confessions and Kamikaze Girls were my three ones that like I would I would always immediately recommend to somebody and just I think anybody would like those films and uh I just wish wish more I wish a few more people saw it, but I think it's not uh, the it's not as bad as some of the other films that I've released. <laughs> right. You've also done um Shion Sono's Love and Peace, which is kind of a, a musical at heart, right? Um that was pretty cool. Oh, actually, I'm I'm in that band as a musician um, on a poster, <laughs> and and one scene at the end or something like that, uh, playing one of the bands that he likes uh, in 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 his fictional story in the film. Amazing! I didn't know that. Um, and you also did Mike's for Love's Sake, which is not one of my favorites of his, but that it's like a Bollywood style musical action film, which is pretty cool. Yeah, based on a 70s uh, TV show. But the, the songs in that are really good. Uh, yeah. It's just a bit too <laughs> yeah, long yeah. for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, there's so much kind of music-based stuff that you've done. And obviously, as I just said in that quote, you are a record collector and a DJ. So you must be quite connected to the music scene in, in Japan, right? Well, I mean, I DJ, but I DJ at like soul clubs and not really anybody comes. So um, <laughs> it's not that big of a connection. But but yeah, some, I guess, more connections to film people. Like, uh, for example, Legend of the Stardust Brothers, uh, the, 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 the two main people in that film are musicians. And one of them is a guy called Kan Takagi, who started the first rap band in Japan called Major Force. Sure. And they were big because they were basically the first Japanese rap band. And if you listen, everybody in Japan loved them because they were the first Japanese rap band. But if you listen to rap music and you listen to them, they're pretty awful. <laughs> I, I think like just rapping is it doesn't seem to work in as well in in Japanese. Um, I think the language in, of rap is obviously the most important aspect of rap because the playing of the language. <laughs> just maybe Japanese isn't the best language for rap, uh, but they weren't terribly good despite the fact that they were huge and. Um, I guess being close to him has got me into that sort of crowd. But otherwise, I mean, maybe Key, I think, uh, Shibukawa Kiyohiko, who is the um, main actor from Low Life Love, who's in, he's in a drummer in a psychobilly band. And uh, it's, it's very rare to have a relatively well-known actor also be in a band of, like, the quite possibly the most niche genre of music there is out there, uh, I mean, I think many people might have heard of rockabilly, but psychobilly is is uh, quite minor, to, to to be to be fair. We're talking about um, Tadanobu Asano as well, right? He he does a lot of musical stuff, and again, it's quite weird and niche, but it has a big following because of his name, right? Because he's a he's a big star. Yeah, I think it's, he's got a show, uh, a 20th anniversary or 10th anniversary show out in uh, on April the 30th in Tokyo, and uh, I think it's already sold out. So I'm. Um, his band Soda, but that's, yeah, obviously because of his name. I don't know if the band's any good or not, but I don't think it needs to be because uh, he's such a big name. Did you, James, did you say that you were, when you went on tour in Japan, were you playing with any Japanese bands? Uh, we, we had a Japanese support band, but I can't remember who they were. But interestingly, I remember in the venue or next door, they had a load of Tadanobu Asanu's like art like uh he released a book or something of mm. like his drawings and um i remember thinking that was really cool because like you know i was 
nine years younger. I didn't really know much about Japan, but I liked films like Itchy the Killer, great soundtrack, by the way, um, mm. Carrera Musication, uh, which is the band Boredoms, um, minus one person, but films like that. And I remember going there and the first things I saw were like advertisements that had Tadanobu Asano and I seem to remember that Kitano was in some kind of whiskey advert at the time. <laughs> and I was just like, kind of, kind of blew my mind because, you know, nobody else, none of my friends really knew who these people were, but I, all of a sudden these kind of actors I really liked were everywhere. And it was the same when I went to Korea last year, there were, you know, there's um, Lee Byung-hun advertising beer and Ma Dong Seok <laughs> is on the side of all the buses with like his biceps out and Gong Yu is on the side of a taxi with a new deodorant or something. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I seem to remember there was lots of sho Japanese shoegaze was quite popular, that sort of early 90s, lots of distortion, dreamy, um, indie music there were lots of those bands in japan at the time which was pretty cool um mm. but yeah as for as for like current sort of japanese indie bands and stuff like that i can't i don't really know because again it's quite secular in a way um the indie scene there i don't know if you know any you know good contemporary music out of japan adam uh honestly i'm a bit out of it uh for the especially ever since i i had a kid my mind was completely gone off and uh, my record player is just got loads of diapers all on it so um <laughs> i mean i haven't listened to a song or any music in a while or been out to a club in years but um <laughs> the scene is 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 very lively um for sure especially you know because tokyo is so compact uh, and uh you get it's the smallest of smallest clubs i mean it, it's rare in england to have like tiny tiny clubs i mean of course you have things like the 12 bar and all those all those i mean maybe on the 12 bars not around anymore but um like those soho small little live house places but in tokyo that's like there's like billions of them so if you think about those live houses playing to tiny rooms every single night different bands i mean the, the scene is just insane uh but i'm out of that scene unfortunately yeah uh, <laughs> I'm in the countryside with a kid and uh, I couldn't be any further away. <laughs> what, what I always really enjoy as a music fan going to a different country is like plotting out a Google Maps of all the different record stores I might want to visit or like, uh, you know, music bars or music clubs and use that as my kind of like scavenger hunt map. And that's how I like to kind of like walk around a city and see a city. And you end up, you know, speaking to people in all these record stores I did, you know, I did this in Seoul and everyone's really interested in the music you're into and everyone can speak English a bit. Uh, so you end up discovering loads of new music just by talking to people in these record stores. And um, so, Adam, you've already mentioned a couple of record stores earlier. I mean, the only one I know in like Tokyo is Tower Records, um, which is a bit of a landmark I mean, I would have thought Disc Union was quite well known by everybody. Uh, it's it's a quite a big chain. I mean, uh, but, yes. but yeah, that that but, one as well. Like, I didn't go there last time, though. That's that's already on my list that I've drafted without any concrete plans of coming back to Tokyo. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. Do you often, did you used to go to gigs much in Tokyo, Adam? Oh, for sure. And when I first, like you, the same as you, when I first came to Japan, it was just with a map. And and that was obviously before before uh, Google Maps and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and in Japan, doesn't have street names. It has like the the addresses written by like uh, it'll be like Golders Green two three seven, and so it's like you have to you you have to go to Golders Green, and then like you have to find a block within Golders Green that is block two, and then within that block there's like a seven, and then but but seven is not next to eight. Seven could be next to fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and they're not written on like street signs. They're written like that seven or five is written on like a small green block, like on a telephone pole somewhere. And it's almost impossible to find out. And I would just walk. I spent spent the first two days or three days just walking without nonstop around Tokyo, um, trying to find addresses of record stops and then live houses and and uh, every single night from then just going into clubs and uh, yeah finding out great new songs and, and the, actually when they dj in japan uh, where dj has has a little space in front of the dj decks and they put the song the 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 jacket of the band that the song they're playing on there right. so like everybody would just like take notes oh that's the song you know and, and you learn so much uh in that respect and uh i think yeah the J- tokyo because tokyo is that really never city that never st- sleeps and like there's always something going on until about seven in the morning you know you can just go to about three clubs a night and uh experience so many things and um and then go home but uh yes james uh, if you have if you have a kid uh you you will you should forget all that right <laughs> but but what you were saying about you know finding it hard to find these record stores that's kind of the fun of it because that's how you get lost in a city and uh and then sometimes you'll you know you'll find the place you're looking for whether it's a record store or something and it might just be someone's living room and <laughs> you know they're selling coffee from their apartment kitchen and have about 10 records on the wall and then you take that one off and you go to the next one um yeah i i kind of like i think it's a really great way to discover somewhere new is to is to do that and of course if you're looking at record stores they're often the same shops that are selling all these films and dvd mm. um so if you're listening to this podcast that that'll probably interest you as well <laughs> Do you know what's funny? I've had I had a friend that's just been out in in Tokyo and Osaka and Kyoto and all of that, and we started a thread. Uh, so it's Adam, him, and myself, just so Adam can give him a few tips and tricks of where to go, what to look out for, where to avoid, maybe. And within two days of him being there, Ethan, uh, the guy, messaged me. He was like, I'm a broken man. <laughs> and he was kind of following Adam's advice of like, go to this bar. And then he'd meet people there and they'd take him to another bar. And then he'd mm-hmm. miss the last train. So we had to keep drinking till 5.30 in the morning when the next, when the trains would start. And then he'd have to get on that train to go to Kyoto or something. And uh, it's so funny. He's uh He's going to come back. Um, he's just got back. He's actually got dengue fever because he ended up in Malaysia. <laughs> ended up in hospital. But uh, as soon as he's got a clean bill of health, I'm going to go meet up with him and he's going to give me uh, the real lowdown of, of where to go and what to do. But you're right. I mean, getting lost in a place is the fun of it too. But I think um, if you're there for a relatively short amount of time, if you get too lost, you know, you're missing some amazing stuff. So I'm hoping for a more succinct guide maybe. <laughs> Adam, maybe you should start um, distributing like uh, pamphlets in all of your releases with, you know, tips <laughs> and itineraries and, you know, see if you can get something set up with the Tokyo Tourism Boards. 
and uh, like yeah, a drift in Tokyo, to, the docu- documentary actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how to break a tourist in two days. Uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's uh, if if everybody yes, please come to uh, Japan and uh, and uh, yes, save up a lot of money beforehand because you'll you'll be broke very quickly, <laughs> especially if you collect records uh, like mm. like we do. It's uh, a killer. But it's or fun. films. Or films. Well, films are aren't aren't well actually yeah yeah there are loads of places that you can still get so many DVDs of films that have never been released outside and in Japan they're not that cheap either so. Yeah, the only problem is in the re- the saving grace is that people who don't speak uh, Japanese won't be able to watch them because they won't have subtitles, which is the, the bonus mm. of being able to buy vinyl that uh, has has uh, no needs no subtitles. But also, it, I mean, they're still fun as souvenirs. My friend Henry, who listens to the, this podcast, was in Tokyo last year and he went shopping for film posters in Tokyo and he brought me back a crazy Crazy Thunder Road uh, poster which I was quite um, impressed by because obviously our experience on this side of the world is that it's, you know, a fairly niche film that a lot of people wouldn't know, but he managed to find a poster. And uh, so that was my secondhand souvenir from him. That could have been cheap. That's amazing. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Thank you for having me. We've been doing it nearly two years now and it's crazy that you've only just come on, but uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's an honor. Thank you for letting me talk about, um, you know, something I feel passionate about. Um, I hope I hope you weren't all too bored. <laughs> Not at all. Um, as you mentioned at the start, although I added an extra decade, um, it's the 10 year, it's been 10 years since your debut album, right? So where the heaven are we? And you're yeah, doing a bunch right. of shows in the UK. Yeah, I mean, if anybody some, somehow knows my band from listening to this podcast, I'm not sure you will. But, um, I think you'd be yeah. surprised. I think one of the funniest things about your social media, I don't know who manages your social media. Um, the band. Uh, but all yeah. of you do, do you? You all just log in? No, and do no, no. It's, um, it's mostly Ozzy, the singer. Right, Ozzy, I thought so. He did a really funny post the other day that I loved where someone had put... Uh, <laughs> a thing up saying you know which is the best band out of Birmingham or something like that and uh one of the one of the answers was swim deep and very few people had voted for it yeah it and then the one of the comments underneath was who the fuck is swim deep and they <laughs> but the fact that he shared that I just thought was so brilliant and you know self-deprecating and I think the fans that you have just absolutely love you but maybe you're not like a, a household name uh yeah no but you're right it's great we're very lucky to be able to be 10 years plus into a a music career and I think it's a very special privilege to be able to perform on stage at um after so many years whether it's huge crowds or small crowds and get to travel the world of course so Mm. yeah it's I mean if anybody's thinking of starting a band I definitely recommend it (laughs) um (laughs) yeah it's great and yeah and thanks if anybody is interested we're touring uk and ireland in may and june and you can buy tickets if you like um and if not you can read my writing work um on places like dazed id uh yeah like i said i've got something coming out in empire soon and it would be great if you read it because the more you read of these things with third window films and other east asian um 
films, the more um, my editors will be interested in commissioning more of it, which, uh, <laughs> which is great for all of us who are fans of this kind of uh, cinema. And so, yeah. A hundred percent. So yeah, again, if if you find it hard to find all of James's stuff because it's all over the place being freelance, if you just follow him on Twitter at, at James Belmont, um, you share all your stuff there, right? And that's probably the best yeah. place to find it all. Yep. Love it. Right, Adam, come on, end of the show. This is always my favourite part where I just put Adam on the spot and say, what are you working on? What's coming out? What news have you got? What's exciting? Well, yes, the uh, Katsui Tuishi box set is uh, finally coming to fruition, and uh, it will be six films, uh, including brand new re- remasters of uh, Shark Skin Man and uh, Party 7 uh, from the original negatives, uh, as well as uh, his first stu- first film, a 50-minute film, not a feature film, uh, sort of short in between, called Promise of August, which has been remastered and has never been available anywhere in the world on any format whatsoever. And Amazing. as well as them, uh, a film called Sorasoi, which oh. also has never been released um, in any format outside of a few film festivals. And uh, Hello Junichi, which is a really good children's film he made. And uh, Norioka Workshop is a short film he made last year that has never been released in any physical format anywhere in the world. So it's quite a good box set. But uh, to, to accompany that, um, he will be coming to Europe. And uh, first of all, uh, if any of you happen to be in Switzerland, he will be at the New Chantel Film Festival from uh, June the 30th to July the 4th. We're doing a retrospective of all his works. Uh, and then right after, he'll be coming to England. And uh, on July the 5th, there'll be a double bill screening of Sharkskin Man and Party 7 at the Prince Charles Cinema, which James will be uh, emceeing. And, yo. Uh, yo, yo. <laughs> yeah, we'll be... We'll be... We'll be uh, chatting to the director and doing a and A, I think. So I think that'll be really great, um, a really great event. Yeah, come. Yeah, the Prince Charles is such a great cinema too. So hopefully we'll get a decent crowd there, and because the energy of those films is so good, um, I can imagine it really going off there. I've had some great nights at the the Prince Charles because the audience is so engaged. Um, yeah, right. get really get involved. It's a big cinema, so everybody please come because uh, they're quite strict there about um, films that aren't sold out. And, uh, you know, yeah, I remember Stardust Brothers was the, the, the first screening with the director and it was only about half full. So uh, it can be hard. Uh, and, and I hope everybody will come and uh, James, uh, come and see James as well as Katsui Zuishi. <laughs> come, come and see James. Come and see me especially, yeah. <laughs> Okay, and what's the film we've got next month coming out? We've got... Um, ah, yes. It's uh, Go. Yagisada's Go, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, fantastic film about um, about racism in, in Korea, of Zainichi Koreans in Japan. And uh, it features uh, Kubotsuka Yosuke in his breakthrough role. Uh, people nowadays might recognize him through a lot of the third window films uh, Toshio Kitoda releases, uh, which he is the main actor. But um, this was the film that he... That made him big, and it's he's really, really good in that film. And um, the film itself is is fantastic. It was in uh, Berlin Film Festival, and a lot of other big film festivals. It was Japan's nomination for the Oscars at the time, and yet it was never actually released in England, uh, and has never been released on Blu-ray anywhere in the world. So um, 
yeah, I think not many people have seen it, uh, and and I, I do hope people do watch it. It's out on May twenty second. Have you seen that one, James? I sent you one of the check discs, I think. Uh, yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but it's very high up on my list. I've had lots of stuff to get through recently, but yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. It's in the Midnight Eye Guide to Japanese Cinema, which has been my Bible for the last 20 years. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you have that book, Ben. Um, uh, no, by, I don't have by, it. I think it's yeah, quite hard to by get to. By former Third Window Films podcast guest Tom Mez and Jasper Sharp. Um, so yeah, I'll be, I'm looking forward to taking that one off the list. It's so good. I mean, I only just saw it for the first time thanks to Adam sending me that check disc. But um, I was really blown away. And once the the final release is out, I'll definitely re- rewatch it before we record the episode. And it's going to be a really good one. Okay, awesome. Well, Adam, I'm really sorry we've gone long again today. I know it's uh, <laughs> the bane of your life <laughs> when we go over an hour. Um, but yeah, if you're not following Adam, you know where he's at. It's at Third Window on Twitter, at Third Window Films on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere else. Um, as I said, at James Balmont on Twitter. I'm at Benji Box, but with a Y. And yeah, as always, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Third Window Films podcast. Up by the third window from the right, two flights up by the third window from the right, the third window from the right, two flights up. That's the one with the shape pulled down, that's the